Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Christian B. Miller. He's the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University and past director of The Character Project, as well as director of The New Honesty Project. Today we're talking about his book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? Welcome to the show, Professor Miller. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really look forward to our conversation. I am generally pretty confident that I'm a good person. Should I be less certain about that? Uh, well, I don't know you very well, so maybe you're 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 on target, uh, and maybe you are one of the what I would think of as exceptional exceptions to the rule of most people not being good. Um, but as a general matter, these two things seem to me true to be true to me. On the one hand, we tend to think of ourselves as good people. So if you look at survey data where you rate your character from one to five, with one being poor character and five being very good character, lots of people will give themselves a four out of five. So we, we tend to, in general to have an inflated or a high opinion of our character. But at the same time, that opinion does not seem to correspond to the facts. Because for reasons I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, the best evidence of what character is actually like suggests that most people do not have the virtues, do not have good character, and so fall short of their own self-evaluation and self-opinion. So is the goal to to try and get them – I mean, so we're going to talk about some of these experiments, but I guess we kind of flush out how some of these work. Uh, is Do these experiments rely on having people self-grade? And then like I would help someone and then seeing if they actually help someone, do you actually put them into almost like fake situations that they think are real to see if they line up what they think they will do with what they actually do? Yeah, so, so good. So when, when we're thinking about character here and how good our character is, there are lots of ways to assess that. And the way I go is to look at the psychological research. So I want to be clear that that's not the only methodology you can employ. You can look at religious texts. You can look at history. You can look at current events. What I like about the psychological research is that it puts per lots of participants into different situations that are morally relevant and sees how they behave in those situations. Uh, I should say right off the bat, I'm a philosopher. I did not run these experiments. I'm piggybacking on the work that psychologists have done for the last 50 years. And now to directly answer your question, uh, Lots of times these studies would not ask people to first rate their own character and then put them in a situation. The reason being that that would potentially taint the results because you've already primed them to think about morality and think about their own character. And then you ask them to perform an action. Well, you know, how, how honest am I? And I, okay, I have to think about honesty. And I give myself a four out of five. And then a few minutes later, here's an opportunity to cheat. Are you going to take the opportunity to cheat or not? Well, you know, that's probably not an accurate reflection of how people would ordinarily be. So instead, what we have are, are two different bodies of evidence here. We have, on the one hand, just surveying lots of people uh, using paper and pencil surveys to see how they rate their own character. And then separately, different people, different experiments, different research, uh, putting participants into concrete situations. Uh, where they have an opportunity to lie or to cheat or to steal or to help or to harm and seeing what they actually do. So do they do the right thing? 
where you know that hopefully it's fairly uncontroversial what the right thing is, or do they fall short? And that to cut to the chase, um, the pattern of behavior that I end up seeing across lots and lots of these studies, not putting a lot of weight on any one study, but looking at the body of work collectively, is a pattern of behavior that does not seem to me to correspond to uh, what I would expect of a virtuous person. Um, the that the virtuous person sets the bar pretty high for behavior as well as motivation and thoughts. And I'm not seeing that translating into or corresponding to the data that's actually out there in psychology. Maybe we can dig a bit into that before we turn to more of the findings and the individual experiments that drive them. When we talk about a virtuous person, because you said early on in our conversation, you mentioned like we're, we're talking about good character and good character is someone with good character, someone who possesses the virtues. So what do we mean by the virtues and what does it mean to say that someone has them versus doesn't have them? Right. You're, you must be a philosopher at heart. Um, so that's, that's where I like to start because a philosopher always starts by defining the terms and getting real clear what we're talking about. And then we can go uh, and see how they, the messy empirical data maps on to the definitions so uh, you're right. I say character uh, is the kind of broad category. And under that, you have good character and bad character. And if we take good character, I'm understanding that in terms of the virtues and bad character would be understood in terms of the vices. And then I can give examples of virtues and then I'll give you the definition. Um, so examples of virtues are things like honesty, temperance, justice, fortitude, gratitude, courage, and the like. These are not unfamiliar notions, hopefully that, you know, things that we, we often talk about in our ordinary lives. Uh, as a general matter, virtues, uh, this might be more the philosophical contribution, virtues have three components to them. They have a, uh, they have a motivational component, they have a thinking component, and they have an outward external behavioral component. So in, in all three are necessary. If you don't have one of those components, you can't be a virtuous person or instantiate or uh, possess a virtue. So to, to make that a little bit less abstract, let's just pick one. Let's, let's take something like compassion. So, of course, a compassionate person externally helps others. Um, so their behavior is one of being helpful. But that can't be the whole story because if they're helpful for the wrong reasons or for crummy reasons, then they don't get to count as compassionate, virtuously compassionate. So the motivation has to be virtuous as well. Things like caring for the person in need for his or her own sake. Plus the thinking has to be virtuous too. So being able to recognize when someone is in need and being able to recognize what would be helpful in their situation and what would not be helpful. So virtue involves thinking, motivation, and behavior. Now, the last part of your question was, well, what does it mean to say someone has one or doesn't have one? Well, I think that there, there's what we might say a, a threshold, um, that your character has to kind of pass over a threshold of being good enough to count as virtuous or to have one of the virtues. So to, so to put that a little bit differently, um, if let's just switch the example, say to so say honesty. Um, if someone lies repeatedly for no good reason and cheats and steals, they have a character. They have a character trait. 
That's actually, you can predict what they're going to do and you can explain their behavior in terms of their character trait, but it's not good enough to count as the virtue of honesty. You have to have, if you're going to be honest, an honest person, you have to have uh, a pattern of uh, honest behavior. And the honest behavior has to be caused by the appropriate thoughts and motives. And once you pass that threshold, then you get to count as possessing or having a virtue like the virtue of honesty. Does that then mean that vices, because you spend a fair amount of time in the book also talking about vices and studies that that measure vices, that vices are simply the absence of a virtue? Are they something else entirely, like their own their own trait? Um, or I'm thinking like so that you know the most famous virtue theory is probably Aristotle's, and for him it's we have we have vices, and then the virtue is the you know right spot between them. You go too far in one direction, it's a vice too far in the other. Um, so so virtues hover between vices. But is how does how specifically does a vice that's, fit into this? That's great. That's a great question. Uh, people might have different views. I am definitely coming from the tradition of Aristotle. I've been influenced by him more than anyone else in my thinking about character. I do think of vices as also character traits as well, rather than just the absence of a virtue. Um, I think that if you have if you don't have a virtue, that leaves the door open to lots of possibilities of what your character might look like. Not necessarily vicious. So let me put this differently. Um, you can have a virtue, you can have a vice, or you could have something in between the two. There are other options between virtue and vice. So merely saying I don't have the virtue doesn't get you a vice. Now. More on vices, though. So I do think of vices as character traits that have actually the same features of virtues, just oriented in the opposite direction. So they have a thinking component to them, they have a motivational component to them, and they have a behavioral component to them. Uh, so so you, could, you could run the same story I just told about honesty using dishonesty. Think about dishonest thoughts, dishonest motives, and dishonest behavior. And then you've got the vice of dishonesty, which um, which then uh, opens up empirical questions too. Well, uh, do most people have the virtues or do most people have the vices? Or if there's a middle space between the two, if there are other options out there, maybe it's neither. So if, we, if we're talking about being virtuous, so it's kind of an interesting metaphysical concept where you could have someone who believes they're virtuous – and have other people believe they are virtuous, but they are not in fact virtuous. Uh, or you could have a situation where a person believes they are not virtuous and other people believe they are not virtuous, but maybe they are in fact virtuous. It seems kind of interesting to try and decide which one of those you would choose. Because in one of them, you are virtuous, but no one knows it. In the other one, you aren't, but, but you, you aren't, but everyone thinks you are. Is there a reason we should care about one over the other? Ah. Um, that's a that, that's a tricky question. I've never got I've never even thought about that before. Um, you're, I mean, first of all, I, I I definitely grant the assumptions. Everything you said there sounds right. You can think you're virtuous and not be virtuous. You can think you're not virtuous and actually be virtuous. If I'm given the choice between the two, which one do I take? So it, it, I want I wonder if it depends on on individual virtues too. So um, suppose I think I'm honest, but I'm really not. Or suppose I think I'm not honest, but I really am, um, which was, I don't, I don't know if I have a really clear 
answer drafts. Well, even aside from whatever your answer is, it's it's an interesting conundrum because it, it's what popped in my head when thinking about the general thesis of your book that that people seem to have an overestimation of their own virtue or their own moral character, which I mean seems to me it could be you could argue that that's okay. I mean, if 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 you because if you really think you're a bad person, like that becomes depression and maybe suicide or something along those lines. That you, it's it's okay that your brain is actually kind of fighting to tell you a better story about yourself because the alternative is depression and suicide. I mean, there, there, it has been observed before that uh, depressed people score better on tests where they are accurately assessing things about the world and people, what they think about them, they actually score better on those tests, but maybe that's the reason they're depressed. Right. Good. So that, that that's really good. Um, so now maybe I can offer a little bit more. You give me a little bit more time to think it through. Um, so it, if the alternatives you're presenting me, with me with are, I think I'm actually a vicious person, but I'm really virtuous, or I think I'm a virtuous person, but I'm really vicious. Um, those are very stark alternatives uh, at the ends ends of the spectrum, extremes of the spectrum, so to speak. But now this gives me a chance to a little bit explain a little bit more about my own view, and helps address the question too. So my own view is that it's not that most people are vicious. So it's not that we have this overinflated sense of our character because, in fact, we're vicious. So we give ourselves a four out of five, but really a one out of five. Uh, that's that's really massive, massive self-deception or massive er- error going on. My view is what I call mixed character, where our character is more like, if you use the numbers again, more like a three out of five. Um, we're a mixed bag. We have some good sides to our character and some bad sides to our character, but not good enough to count as virtuous and not bad enough to count as vicious. So we occupy a middle space between virtue and vice. This is for most of us, um, such that we can move in either direction. We can, we can, our character can erode and get worse, and we can tend towards vice, or it can improve and tend towards virtue. Uh, in that framework, um, I think it's, you know, if I had, now if I had to choose, I think it would be okay to say, um, I have a mixed character. I think I have a mixed character, but I'm really virtuous. That's the choice I would make. Um, I, I'm. I'm underselling my character. It's actually better than than I think it is. Um, that's the option I would take uh, of the two you presented with, me with. Um, and and one one last footnote. You know why some of this matters. Uh, well, if if people tend to have a positive, especially very positive view of their character, when in fact they don't have the virtues, then um, they can let down others as well as themselves. So, for example, um, they might think, okay, I, of course I would help in an emergency uh, when no one else around is helping because I, I'm, I'm a compassionate person. And then the emergency comes along and lo and behold, they don't help. They, they let down the person who needed help. Uh, or the professor thinks, okay, m- most of us are, are honest people, so I can relax my standards for the, taking the test or uh, take-home exams or so, or so forth, because I think most people are honest. Well, lo and behold, uh, in fact, they're not, and there's widespread cheating on the test. 
Um, so uh, the gap between perception and reality does matter, I think. Are there reasons that I or anyone else ought to care about having a good character, about possessing the virtues outside of purely instrumental? Like, you know, if nobody likes me, that makes my life worse. And people tend to like people who they find to be honest and caring and compassionate and so on. But are there are there other reasons why we should care about this at all and let it be action guiding? Right. Um, there are, I think, but it might depend on who the audience is to, as far as how persuasive they are. So if you're presenting me with a moral skeptic uh, or someone who's just, you know, a moralist or a psychopath or something like that, not to say these are all equivalent, but just, uh, I probably will not be able to provide sufficient arguments or reasons to convince that person to get onto the virtue bandwagon. Um, however, if you're talking, if I'm talking to someone who's already you know, interested in morality, cares about, uh, about doing right and wrong, um, and is trying to give a, live a good life, but maybe is not as familiar with the categories of virtue and vice and learns about them and, and says, and then, then gives me that question. Well, why should I devote a lot of time to this? Here's what I'd say. Um, first of all, I probably would go with the instrumental reasons um, simply because they're the easiest to appreciate and often have the strongest pull on us. So it turns out that uh, people with better character uh, have all kinds of, that well, their better character is correlated with all kinds of benefits in their life, this has emerged from the data, uh, things like longer lifespan, greater subjective well-being, uh, less stress, and, and so forth. So I would spend some time on that, but you're asking me the question of, well, let's move beyond that. What, what else is there beyond that? Uh, here, I would, depending on the audience and the person, I might cite different things. So for example, if it's a religious audience, I would go in, in, a, in, a, in a religious direction and talk about the importance of character within religion in general or within particular religions. Let's assume it's, it's not a religious audience. Let's assume it's a secular audience. Then I think uh, it gets a little harder, um, but a couple of things you could say. One is it's beneficial not just for yourself, but a beneficial for society at large uh, if there's more virtue in a society. Um, so if there's more justice actually embodied by the people in a society that makes a society overall better. Um, that's one thing. A second thing is that I, I just think uh, virtue is intrinsically good. So you said, give me something that's not instrumental. Well, what's not instrumental? The intrinsically good, things that are good in of themselves. So I think the virtue in general and individual virtues are all intrinsically good in of themselves, even if they don't bring about good consequences or outcomes. And then finally, there's uh, a, a more nebulous um, reason. Uh, it's, it's less a philosophical reason and more an emotional reason, which is that um, we often find exemplars of virtue to be inspiring. Um, so when I read the life of Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman, it's not so much that I'm seeing philosophical arguments presented to me. It's more like, there, that person's life powerfully moves me at an emotional level. It, it, it uh, brings about admiration and emulation. It inspires me to change my own life. And so it gives me an emotional reason to want to have my character better map on or reflect the character of the person I'm learning about. Um, so those are, those are a couple of thoughts in that direction.
Your book reminded me of this discussion of how good are we uh, was brought to a head in a very famous case in the late sixties in New York called Kitty Gen- of a woman named Kitty Genovese who was murdered, brutally murdered in uh, I think right outside of her apartment while dozens, if not hundreds of people listened to her scream for help and no one went to help her. And after this happened, there was a kind of a big influx of people saying, you know, this is exactly what's wrong with America or what's wrong with society or capitalism or you name it. People don't help each other. And there was a desire to do a bunch of experiments on similar situations. But if I recall correctly, a lot of those experiments became extremely context dependent. Uh, they didn't actually end up concluding that people just don't help people getting knifed. Uh, they they sometimes don't help people if they're hearing – they think that someone else is going to come or the police are going to come. But if you put them in different situations, they often are pretty good at helping people and it's very, very context dependent. Um, is that is that the way the, the literature is today or has it gotten sort of worse in terms of how much we help people? That, that, that's great. Um, so let me take it really narrow and then build up from there. Um, so very narrowly, that case is – you're right, extremely famous – there's, there's uh, recently been some question about the authenticity of that case. So for, re- for listeners who want to dive into it, you just Google, and uh, there's been some question about whether it actually happened the way it's been historically depicted. Uh, leaving, leaving that aside, there's still, you're absolutely right, it inspired a whole bunch of research about factors which uh, foster helping and factors which impede helping. Most the studies most directly relevant to that kind of case are the group effect studies. So you bring a participant into a lab. I'll give you a, a, a example of this from 1968, uh, the lady in distress study. Um, you bring a participant into the lab. The participant is taken into a room, uh, sit, sits down, given a survey to complete. The person in charge leaves. The, the participant's working on the survey. A few minutes later, another participant comes in sits down at the same table working on the same survey. They're strangers to each other. They don't know each other at all. The person in charge leaves. A few minutes later, uh, there's a loud crash in the next room. The person in charge voice, you can hear the voice crying and screaming in pain. Ouch, this is falling on me. Ouch, 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 I can't get it off me. Clearly, she's in distress. And what happens? Well, in this variation where uh, there are two people, participants, who don't know each other and uh, the um, one of the participants, unbeknownst to the other, is an actor, a confederate, who's told, don't do anything, just keep working on the survey. The first participant will almost certainly not do anything either. So in that situation, only 7% of participants helped. 7, not, not 77, which means 93% didn't do anything to help. Now, that's stunning. Uh, that's one, one study I use as, as evidence of lack of compassion, the virtue of compassion. I don't, you know, it doesn't prove anything by itself, but it's a data point. Um, now, to, to speak more to your question, if it was always like that, then you would get pretty pessimistic and you'd say, boy, people aren't helpful at all. But the experimenters also had a different version where there was no second participant. It was just the first participant comes in, sits down, takes a survey. Leave, uh, the person in charge leaves. A few minutes later, there's the emergency. And in that setup, 70% of participants do something to help. So there you see quite a bit of helpfulness, um, whereas in the first uh, version, you didn't. 
And so it, it, it does seem like it's very context dependent, as you said. Here, the relevant context is the presence or absence of the stranger who doesn't do anything. Uh, if that stranger is you know, unresponsive, the, uh, the story that's emerged is that that can lead to some um, uh, fear of embarrassment concerns. So why is another person doing anything to help? Maybe there's something I'm missing, or maybe there's a larger story, or maybe it's not really emergency. Uh, I don't want to get up out of my seat and run into the next room only to find out that uh, n- nothing's wrong. I-, I would embarrass myself. I look like a fool. And so that's part of the psychological explanation of that phenomena, whereas you don't have that going on when it's just you by yourself as a participant alone. As I was reading all of the the pretty vivid experiments that you cover in the book and and they go through i mean it's one of the it's it's a really fun part to read because the experiments there's something fun about reading clever experimental design too just how do you suss out these things and how do you come up with some elaborate scenario by which you can you know zero in on particular aspects of human belief or behavior but as i was reading it and it is i mean as you say like you're not saying that we the findings are that we are all vicious people but that we're simply, it's kind of a lukewarm approach to our virtue. Um, but but the picture that gets painted by a lot of these studies feels grim compared to, you know, the way that we would self-assess and the way that we imagine the people that we interact with in our daily lives would actually be. And I wondered, I guess, two things. The first is the the question of drawing these kinds of conclusions from psychological studies and and particularly you know psychological studies done in the ways these are done so there's the a while back there was the the critique of experimental psychology the weird critique which said you know the people who participate in these studies often they're done at universities in labs with undergraduates are weird and it stands for western educated industrialized rich and democratic, that it's a, it's a very particular kind of person who is the subject of these studies. And whether we can, so on the one hand, whether we can like extrapolate from that out to broader characteristics of humans in general. And the other one is, I, I just, I found myself wondering, like, maybe there's something about psycho- psychology labs that makes people bad. Uh, like, I'm being a little bit flip, but you know, like, like that maybe just there's something about being in an experimental situation that like throws our moral qualities for a loop. And so is there anything to those worries? And I guess if there is like, how do you, how do you deal with those kinds of worries when you're trying to draw these conclusions from individual studies? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so I should say, preface my remarks by saying that I'm a philosopher again. Uh, I do not have a PhD in psychology and I'm very much relying on the work that others have done before me. So, you know, I'm not no expert here, but I do have something to say about both those points. So first of all, you're quite right. Um, the uh, There's been an almost exclusive focus on Western populations, uh, a very much a skewed perspective on college students, which is natural because the psychologists are professors at universities and they have students right there at their uh not disposal, but just they, they can use in their studies. Um, so what I do here is, first of all, uh, try and be more careful in how I state my conclusion. If I'm being a little bit loose, I'll say most people don't have virtue. But if you want to really pin me down, I can only say things like most people in the West uh, 
uh, in the last 50 years, because that's when we have the psychological research for, uh, of a certain kind of age range or and demographic uh, seem like they don't have virtue. Now, what I also try and do is appeal to studies beyond just the ones that use college students. So I, I really uh, like studies which um, construct a, uh, well, they're, which have a setup where the participants don't even know that they are participants. So that um, in the natural environment, they're being covertly observed and to see whether they help or not, for example. So uh, I'll give you a quick example of that, and then I'll turn to the second part of your question. Uh, so here's a, a really interesting study where um, it was in a shopping mall. And so, you, you know, this is anyone can be at the shopping mall. We don't have to worry about this, this just student population. Uh, the control group were people who were going past clothing stores and then were presented afterwards with an opportunity to help. The experimental group were people at the same shopping mall who, different people though, but same shopping mall, who had just passed Mrs. Fields' cookies or Cinnabons, if those ring a bell, um, you know what that experience is like, <laughs> uh, that's, that smells like. Um, so they, they have the, the, the really pleasant aromas, and then they are given the same helping task. Now, it's not like an experimenter comes up and says, I'm part of an experiment, uh, can you help me with this? It's you know an actor who needs some help, uh, pretending to be an ordinary person. And, uh, you know, in this study, really fascinating result, about 20% of people helped in the control condition and about 60% of people helped in the experimental condition after the Mrs. Fields cookies and Cinnabons. Um, so this is, you know, this is my, the best kind of study of all. When you don't even know that you're part of a study and you get a powerful and, and, and intriguing result from that. And we can talk more about it, what I think the implications of that and what, it, what explains the difference with the smells. And, well, yeah. Yeah, I want to clarify. You you said six zero. You said twenty yeah. percent for people walking past the yep. clothing store, but six zero, because I always thought we were going to be in a Homer Simpson situation where you know he's like mm, Cinnabon or help someone out, right? But they actually <laughs> helped them out more, right? Yep, I, I was just that's like the Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah what yeah, is sorry. your interpretation okay, of that? So, so, so um, I'll, I'll talk about that for a little bit. I, I will. Uh, so we'll we'll table the other question for a moment. I'll come back to it. Um, so that, yeah, it's such an intriguing study. It's hard to to let it go. Uh, the the story, the the explanatory story, the psychological story is something like this: uh, the good smell subconsciously triggers in people's mind a good mood. It's not like you consciously say, "Oh, this is put me. This is going to put me in a good mood." It just it just happens to you, and furthermore, triggers subsequently a desire to maintain that good mood. So you're, you know, that those smells, they put you in a good mood. You don't want that good mood to go away. You want the good mood to be maintained, but now you've walked past the stores. You don't have the smell anymore. So, oh, here comes an opportunity to help. Well, helping is, an op is a way to maintain a good mood. Um, so that is, is nothing special about the helping per se. Other options in the environment which would have maintained the good mood also would have been attractive. It just so happens that the next thing that came along was the opportunity to help, and that helps me keep my good mood going. Um, so helping increases. So this also goes back to your earlier question of situational factors and how um, this is not a bleak picture. We never help. No, look, these people did help much more than the controls did because of a very specific situational feature in their environments, the smell. 
which they themselves weren't even aware of having an impact on their helping. Um, if you ask them, you know, after like uh, 10 minutes later, well, why did you help? And they'll say, well, you know, that person needed help or, uh, you know, I, I was able to, I, I was in any hurry and it, it seemed like the right thing to do. And they would be oblivious to the impact of the smell in as a factor in leading to their helping. Um, okay. So um, now the uh, other question was, uh, do psychological studies uh, somehow skew the results in a certain way, kind of bring out a, a, a darker side to our character or kind of give us license to act worse than we perhaps normally would? And I would say I would push back on that a little bit in two ways. Um, one way is just piggyback on what I was just saying, which is that sometimes psychological studies are such that the participants don't even know they're in a study. So they're not even aware of it. Um, but the second thing I would say is that, well, um, there are plenty of studies, which I may, we haven't highlighted as much in this conversation, um, but plenty of studies which show good sides to human beings. And so maybe I'll just give you one to, to kind of balance things out a little bit. So um, this is by my favorite psychologist of all, Daniel Batson, uh, who taught uh, at the University of Kansas for most of his career. And he's one of the world's experts on empathy. So in his studies, just condensing it really briefly, he was able to um, find that students, and unfortunately this is mainly student uh, populations in his research, uh, students who were made to feel empathy for the suffering of others as a compared to a control group, which did not have an empathy manipulation, so the, the students who felt empathy for the suffering of others would help way more than the control group. And furthermore, he found, uh, he, he constructed a, an argument over many years that their helping was altruistically motivated, which means that it was not self-interested helping, but selfless helping, helping aimed at the good of the other person. Now, this is... This is very encouraging to, to my ears, right, or my eyes when I'm reading it on the page, uh, to see that here in this area of our character, most people's character, we are disposed to help reliably and to do so for altruistic reasons. That's a, that's a big thumbs up, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. Um... I, I, the info, it's all, the experiments aren't all bad. Um, one of the ones that is more legendary uh, that you discussed too in the book is is one that a lot of people just know, which is the Milgram experiments of authority, which is a little bit different because those do tend to give a pretty generally bad view of how people uh, will behave when they're told by an authority figure to torture someone. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about that experiment and then also any variances, if you'd like, to, about how it was has it been replicated or what conditions has it been replicated and, and what it might mean for, for our visions of authority and, and our virtue. Right. Sure. Great. Um, and that, 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 that's a nice one to cite, too, because it's, if you know the study, and I'll, I'll summarize in a minute, um, that's, initially it's going to take you into the vice, vice thoughts, right, that, boy, we are, we are pretty wretched people. But even here, there's a positive side to it, um, which gives me a more of a, a mixed character picture, too. So, but first, some context. Uh, so these are the Milgram studies from the 1960s. Uh, they were designed to test whether 
quote unquote, ordinary people in conditions where they are being pressured by authority figures could be brought to commit atrocities. And so exploring some issues from, for example, from World War II and quote unquote, ordinary Germans and how they were uh, uh, brought to or chose to, uh, you know, uh, in a fairly short period of time, commit atrocities to the Jews. So what Milgram in the standard setup uh, did was he'd have a, a person come in, sit down, told to administer a test to a stranger in the next room who is hooked up to an electric shock machine. For every wrong answer that the person in the next room got, the person in charge of the test would would be told, you have to turn up this shock dial more and more. So more wrong answers, higher shock. The other uh, thing to mention about the setup is that behind the participants would be an authority figure, often in a white coat, looking very scientific and you know in charge, who wouldn't do much unless there was a lot of objection from the participants, in which case the authority figure would say things like, you must continue, please continue, uh, we need this results. So what ended up happening? Well, for those listeners who are not familiar with this, it's really important to note that this is this is rigged. Um, the person in the next room is an actor. It's not really getting electric shocks, so that's good. Um, but the participant doesn't know that. The participant thinks that these are our real shocks. And so what ends up happening is that the person in the next room, by design, gets a lot of wrong answers. There's pressure from the, the environment and the authority figure on the participant to keep turning up the shock dial. And lo and behold, the majority of participants do turn up the shock dial more and more and more up to the point where there's the, 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 the test taker in the next room is, is shouting in pain, is saying, I have a heart condition, uh, is pounding on the walls, uh, is saying, uh, get me out of this. I don't consent to this anymore. Nevertheless, the majority of participants kept turning the dial up to the XXX level, which is the lethal, turned out to be, from their perspective, the lethal level of shock, at which point there was just silence. Um, so that's, that's a, a, a little higher than 60% did that. Now, if I stop there, you know, boy, that's, that is depressing. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's disturbing. It's, uh, it's not a one-off experiment either. Milgram himself replicated it. Uh, it's been replicated all over the world. It's it's uh, f- for a time, and then you couldn't do it anymore once the ethics standards got you know got a little bit more stringent. Um, you know, rightly so. When you think about what psychological harm this might do to people who are part of the study. Um, to yeah, go that was. This. I'll just say that was my reading. This one of my reactions was like, yes, it tells us something about the people who participated, but what does this study tell us about? the vices possessed by Stanley Milgram because <laughs> uh, yeah. he kept inflicting this. And you tell these, you tell these stories in there. You mentioned like, you know, people who are just kind of reduced to tears who are broken after participating in this. And he's just like, let's do it again. Well, well, not fortunately. Yes. Right. Fortunately, not the same person, but even then, you know, it's just, just going through it one time um, is bad enough. So yeah, I, I mean, it's a reflection of how the changing times and how scientific uh, research these days is much is held to much higher ethical standard than it was back then, um, but yeah, I, I I I have similar questions myself about 
the uh, the judgments involved in designing this study and putting ordinary people through it. Um, so let me just say one more thing, uh, just to finish the, answering the previous question. What, what about variations? Well, you know, first, um, one lesson I, I derive from this is uh, we have a, a significant desire to obey authority figures, um, much more than we might have originally appreciated. And this is part of our the disconnect between what we think our character is and what our character actually is. Um, nevertheless, uh, there are variants of this study which show almost no harm done. So, for example, if there is no authority figure presence in the room, then the shocking goes way down. The level of shock goes way down. If there are two authority figures who are arguing with each other or conflicted, contradicting each other, shocking goes way down. Uh, if it, the authority figure is not in the same room but is in another room and is just uh, uh, in, is just communicating with a participant over the phone, shocking goes way down. So it doesn't seem like people just have this perverse desire to be cruel, but you know, by, of course some do. They're masochists in the world and 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 so forth. But by and large, most people don't have this just perverse desire to be cruel. When the authority figure's position was undermined or not not existent, they didn't. The participants did not take advantage of their opportunity to inflict harm. In fact, they were very reserved, very uh, very self controlled. Um, so it's a mixed bag there too. I think. As I was reading this, I have been my my own research projects have for the last couple of years, focused on the impact of kind of the political environment on our moral character. And a question that I came up with as I as I was reading this was, so when you're talking about people's willingness to harm, so here we have, we have people seem to be more willing to inflict, you know, very severe and, and clearly unnecessary harm on someone if there's an authority figure present telling them to do it or kind of egging them on. Um, but also you mentioned that one of the findings is people seemed to be more willing to do it if they could essentially pass the moral responsibility buck. Like say, you know, uh, if if I crank this all the way up, am I going to, you know, are you going to take responsibility? You, the authority figure, you, the tester, are you going to take responsibility? It's not on me. And I wondered about that in the context of like political institutions, because it seems like one of the things that politics does or that that acting through the state does is to first i mean there's obviously authority figures telling us to do things but also the act of like voting for something distances you to a great extent from say the enforcement of it um and and so am i right in thinking there's a potential worry there based on these findings that that this distance makes us potentially more willing to do harmful things to each other via like the mechanisms of legislation and so on, because it's easier to pass the buck. Like I, I voted for it, but I like, I'm not the one enforcing it. You know, I'm not the one doing these things ultimately, or I'm doing it or authority figures are the ones doing it. So it's okay. Like, could there potentially be like a short circuiting there that would drive us in directions that, that might not be beneficial, even if like this system is necessary? Yeah, I, I can only speculate here. So that's a really intriguing question. 
I'm sure there's some research on it in political psychology, and I, it's just outside of my really my my comfort zone. Um, so just take this as pure speculation. So you're, you're quite right. In the Milgram case, what mattered to a lot of participants was who's going to be at fault here and who's going to be assigned blame and responsibility. And it seemed clear that if they got reassurance that the authority figure would be the one who was ultimately responsible, not them, for the harm that was being caused, then that licensed them to increase the level of shock. Uh, so we'd have to think about it. Is could that parallel apply in the political case? Um, so I, you know, I I vote for or I, I in some way support this representative, um, but then it's up to the representative to carry out these actions. And if the representative gets it wrong, it's not my fault. But, um, it's that person's fault. Uh, that's that seems to me to be run in parallel, um, but. Without the, looking at the actual research, I'm I'm reticent to to do anything more than speculate. That's a good point. There could be a lot of obviously different factors in there, um, but I, I, I politically, I the one point that that I've tried to do when I act politically is to be a person of good moral character and hopefully and think about some of these experiments like the Milgram experiment and whether or not I'm falling prey to some of these many many errors of thinking or biases or a variety of things to, to, that undercut your moral character. But in my reading of the, a lot of the literature, it's kind of a distressing, it's a distressing conclusion that even if you know about this stuff, it doesn't make you a better person in many instances that you, you, you can know about the Milgram experiment and then go find yourself in it and find yourself turning up the dial. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, it seems to me that studying these examples that you talk about, I mean, it's something that you should you should pay attention to and look for yourself. But it's, it doesn't solve the problem by itself of creating good moral character, does it? No, that's that's intriguing. Um, so this this takes us into the the kind of third part of, of the book. The first part being definitions and why is character important. This, the middle part being what does the, the psychological research tell us in this you know, mixed character picture. And then the final part of the book being character improvement and how to become a better person, how to, how to close the character gap, which is the, you know, the, the, the metaphor I used at the, in the title of the book. So in that last part, I outline a variety of different strategies for trying to grow in virtue and trying to uh, overcome our mixed character. And one of them you're, you're uh, taking us to right now is what I call getting the word out which is increasing our familiarity with some of these biases and some of these results from psychology so that we have a better self-awareness of what's going on in our own minds and then be in a position to curb or counteract the more vicious tendencies or the more negative tendencies in our minds. Now, so I, I would say I agree with you that that alone is not sufficient, but I think it can be a helpful piece. So and there is some some uh, experimental research to back this up too. So let me uh, give you a, a, one of these studies to help clarify what I mean here. Go back to not the Milgram, which we were just talking about, but a little bit earlier to the group effects and the emergencies. And if you're in, with strangers who aren't helping, uh, there was a study done in the 70s, which looked at, okay, what impact would it have if we educated people about the group effect, the bystander effect, and then subsequently they were presented with an emergency situation in which others were not helping. So would the group that got the education 
help more when in a real emergency, so this speaks to your point, uh, as opposed to the control group, which did not get the education and was presented with the same emergency. And in this one study, which it's only one study, it needs to be replicated. I, I don't put you know tremendous weight on it, but it's it's promising, it's suggestive. Uh, it turned out that um, helping, remember, uh, in the original group effect study was about 7%. Uh, in the control version of this study, it was about, I can't remember off the top of my head, but around 12% or so. In, uh, in the group which got the education, um, the helping quadrupled. Um, so the group that was educated about the group effect, and then uh, two weeks later was presented with an emergency, um, and they quadrupled their helping compared to the control. So, but um, so that, that's that's promising to me. Learning more about these tendencies, so that if we conf confront the relevant situations, we can be more on guard and remember. Okay. Why am I not helping? It might not be for any good reason. It might be because of fear and embarrassment. That's not a good reason. I need to help. I need to step up to the plate. Uh, that seems to be a helpful piece, even if it's not sufficient by itself. What are some of the other methods that show promise for improving our character? Sure. Um, so I, I'll, I'll give you two more. Uh, so this was, was called Getting the Word Out. It's two others I'll highlight are, are moral exemplars and more reminders. I should say, as a preliminary, though, uh, there is no simple quick fix here. As we all know, I mean, we should know this from ordinary experience. We should know this if, if, if you're parents, that there's no like magic, magic solution uh, to get your kids to clean up the room or, or anything like that. Um, so it, whatever it is, it's going to be a slow, gradual process full of many setbacks and stumbles along the way. I just want to make that clear from the start. So another approach is to look to the lives of moral exemplars, moral heroes, moral saints, especially those who are exemplary in an area of, of character where I am at my worst. So if, for example, I really struggle with pride, then I would want to try and find an exemplar who is very humble. If I struggle with cowardice, I want to find an exemplar of courage. And these can be historical exemplars. We can think of Jesus. We can think of Confucius, Gandhi, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln. They could also be, and maybe sometimes are more effective, if they are immediate exemplars. So real people in our ordinary lives, uh, whether that's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, um, so someone who I can have regular interaction with and who shows me a way of being in the world and shows me a kind of character that I don't have, but I wish I did have. And so I can uh, admire and then desire to emulate, to, uh, desire to uh, change my life so that it better mirrors and maps onto that person's life. Um, so that's a second point. I think that's there's a lot of common sense to that. So it's a pretty intuitive idea. And there's some empirical results, research backing it up. The, the third one I'll give you uh, is what I call more reminders. It's kind of a, a familiar notion too. The idea here is that um, often what leads us to perform morally second rate or bad actions is that we don't have our focus where it needs to be. 
would get caught up in the moments of what would give me pleasure or what would give me an advantage or set me apart or help my self uh, image uh, improve or my image in front of other people improve. But a moral reminder can help our get our perspective grounded where it needs to be on what we care about, morally speaking. Because most of us do think morality is important, and most of us do have good moral values. Uh, we think that cheating is wrong, we think that lying is wrong, we think that stealing is wrong, and so forth, at least in most cases. It's just that we can get psychologically distracted onto other things that promote, uh, say, our, our pleasure. So a moral reminder could take the form of uh, starting the day with a certain reading that's morally um, loaded, ending the day with a diary or a writing uh, exercise that reflects back on what I did well or not during the day, um, getting text messages throughout the day that uh, keep me uh, oriented where I need to be. So say things like, um, think about what else someone else is going through at this moment, as opposed to what I'm going through. Um, these are small things. They could be uh, signage on the wall in your office. Uh, the, the small things that seem to have a demonstrable impact. That in, in the studies on cheating, for example, signing an honor code serves as a kind of moral reminder. It's very effective in preventing students from subsequently cheating on tests. Without the honor code and an opportunity to cheat, many students will cheat. And this has been shown in the lab. With an honor code serving as a moral reminder and an opportunity to cheat, almost no one cheats. Um, so that's the third and final uh, strategy I'll, I'll recommend. So getting the word out, moral exemplars, and moral reminders. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.